I don't know if you've ever been able to feel what it's like to have the ground shake under your feet. Uh, I remember in college, I was at uh, Charleston Southern University in a class, and, and all of a sudden, everything just, it was just a moment, it was just a tremor. Everything shook, and everybody just kind of looked at each other like, did you do that? No, did you do that? It was, the whole building had shaken. Have y'all ever had the ground shake under your feet? Or may, Yeah, maybe a, a big truck drives by, or a train, or something like that. Or maybe you get on top of a ladder thinking, or a chair thinking it's stable, then you forget that one leg is, is longer than the other. It is no fun being on unstable ground. It is no fun being shaken. It is no fun having our foundation erode away. But as we finish up Hebrews chapter 12 today, over the past few weeks we have seen the writer of Hebrews encourage us as believers and encouraging us as those who believe in Jesus Christ to hold on through the tough times that would seek to shake us up. And even this morning there are some that may feel like that you're giving, you, that you're struggling and that today is the last day of your struggle, that you're just going to give up on that. Or maybe you've tried for as long as you could to be as good as you possibly could be, but yet it seems like good is never good enough for God. And everything that you've tried to make work out has just ended up in shambles. Folks, we all live in a crazy world today, and it would be easy to lose hope as many others have lost hope already in our world today. But And if you are not careful, you will put yourself, and I will put myself, in a very dangerous place. And the, the place that I'm referring to is the one where many believers are in today. That place where people claim Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord, yet feel nothing. They claim Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord, yet they do nothing. They, they proclaim Jesus Christ, and yet the Holy Spirit is doing no work in their lives. Satan wants you to think today, folks, that your problems are bigger than God. He wants you to think that your faith is weak and that the power over you is greater than God's. But I want you to take heart today, folks. It says in 1 John 4, 4, it says, You are from God, little children, and you have conquered them, because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. He has given us a goal, which is heaven, not only in this world, but the world to come. You can be an overcomer this morning. You can be unshakable this morning. God has shown us His power, His mercy, His love, His discipline, and even His grace, all in Hebrews 12. We have seen heroes that have gone before us that gave testimony to God's power and love. God made them unshakable, and He can do the same for you and I today. And so as we look at the passage, let's start with verses 14 through 17 of chapter 12. He says, Pursue peace with everyone and holiness. Without it, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up, causing trouble and by it defiling many. And see that there isn't any immoral or reverent person like Esau who sold his birthright 
in exchange for one meal. For you know that later when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected because he didn't find any opportunity for repentance, though he sought it with tears. The first thing that we see, if we want to have an unshakable faith, if we want to be unshakable as the writer of Hebrews is instructing us today, the first thing that we must do is that we must pursue peace with everyone. The New Living Translation says that we need to work at living in peace with everyone. I mean, think about this. In the time that this was written, the church was going through disagreements. The Christians were not getting along with one another. And he is telling them that that God has just instructed us to live disciplined lives that promote God's grace in our lives so that we can share that grace with others. Listen, it is no secret that he says, I want you to pursue peace. I want you to work on peace is what he is saying, because peace does not come naturally to a society and to a person that is consumed with how everything affects them. Listen, we all are like that. We all want to know what's in it for me. How does this affect me? But the problem is is that when we allow drama, when we allow things that are not peace to infiltrate our lives and to, to garner our, our, our faith and to definitely sidetrack us and keep from having peace in our lives, Satan has got us. Because listen, if we have bitterness in our lives, and it says here in just a moment, if we have bitterness in our lives, that's sin. And, and sin, he says here, he says, if you do not have peace with everyone and holiness, what does it say? You will not see the Lord. What does that mean? That means this. That means if you have sin in your life today, you cannot see the Lord. That means if I have sin in my life, I cannot see the Lord. Because here's a news flash. Sin and the Holy Spirit do not reside in the same place. If you have sin in your lives, and if I have sin in my lives, it chases away the Holy Spirit. It hides us from seeing God as we could clearly see Him. If you're wondering why you can't see God clearly and that what was once so on fire for you and with a vision you once had that was so clear, I would ask you, my friend, what sin are you harboring in your life? Because where there is sin, there is not the Holy Spirit. And where there is the Holy Spirit, there is not sin. Sin always blocks our ability to see God. And you and I will never see God when we have sin in our lives. See, when I used to read this, I always thought, well, this is, this is talking about those that do not know Christ. I mean, if you don't know Christ, you won't see God, right? Well, this is written to believers. And, and the writer of Hebrews is telling the believers, look, if you have bitterness, if you are not holy, if you are living a life that is not pleasing to God, you will not see him. As I've said it before, I'll say it again. If God could not look at his only son, Jesus Christ, when your sin was imparted upon his body on the cross and the sky went dark for six hours and where God turned his back on his son, if God could not look at his very own son with your sin in, on his body, your penalty of sin on his body, what makes you and I think that he can look at us now when we have sin in our lives that we will not let go? It will 
not happen. When we are not right with God, folks, we will not be right with other people. If your life is filled with drama, you're not right with God. If those people around you are filling your lives with drama, in some ways they are not right with God. Because it says here to pursue peace, not make it a byproduct. It says pursue peace and holiness. Dr. Tony Evans in his book, Guiding Your Family in a Misguided World, gives this illustration on bitterness. He says, one day two monks were walking through the countryside. They were on their way to another village to help bring in the crops. And as they walked, they spied an old woman sitting at the edge of the river. And she was upset because there was no bridge. And she couldn't get across on her own. So the first monk kindly offered and said, hey, we will carry you across this river if you would like. And she said, absolutely, that is so kind and I will gratefully accept your offer. So those two monks, they joined hands and they lifted that woman and they carried her across the river. And when they got to the other side, they set her down and she went on her way. Well, a few more miles up the road, the second monk began to gripe. He began to say, oh, my back is hurting so bad. And it's all because we had to carry that silly woman across the river. I cannot go any farther because of the pain. Well, the first monk looked down at his partner, who was now lying on the ground, moaning. And he asked him, have you wondered why I am not complaining, he asked. Well, the monk on the ground that was moaning says, your back hurts, doesn't it? He says, no, it doesn't. Let me tell you why your back hurts. He tells the monk on the ground that's complaining, he says, the reason your back hurts is because you're still carrying the woman we let down a few miles ago. They laid the lady down and they kept walking, except one of them could not let go of the fact that he was inconvenienced, that his body hurt, and that he was having an all-around bad day. He was still carrying that burden. Folks, when we carry bitterness in our lives... When we carry malice towards somebody else, when we carry sin in our lives, it does nothing but weigh us down. Most of us hold to the pain of the past over our loved ones. We like to, um, of our friends and acquaintances, we like to beat it over their head like a club. We, we kind of talk, talk about that, we call it, Gnashing their buttons. You know what I'm saying? I mean, everybody in, in your relationships, you've got that one thing that they did. Say, uh-huh, if I really want to get them back, I'm going to go back to the filing cabinet. I'm going to pull out that, and I'm going to bust that in her face. I'm going to remind them of that. Little do you know that they've got their own filing system. They say, oh, yeah? And then before you know it, we're just kind of piling on things that we said that we forgave. And we said that we forgot. And before you know it, there is no peace. There is no holiness and nothing but sin abounds and that obstructs our very view of God. The writer of Hebrews says here that we are to pursue holiness. Folks, holiness was a big thing to the church, especially in the Old Testament. Do you remember what would happen if even animals got too close to the Holy of Holies? If people got too close to the Holy of Holies that had sin in their lives, they would die. 
They took the holiness of God very seriously. And up until the point when Jesus gave us a new covenant, they were still under that system. Holiness is a big deal to God. What does holiness mean? I know that's a big church word, but holiness is the act of becoming holy. What does holy mean? To be set apart. What does holy mean? It means living for God rather than ourselves. Unclean, unblemished. Well, you say, preacher, it's impossible to be unblemished and clean in today's world. You're right. In your own strength, it is impossible. But that is why we have Jesus Christ. Jerry Bridges wrote a great book called The Pursuit of Holiness. And he was asked, what do you see is the greatest need in the church today? He said there are so many needs in the church today that it's difficult to single out one as the greatest. However, if I had to pick one, I would say the most fundamental need is an ever-growing awareness of the holiness of God. Folks, when you cannot tell the difference between a church service and a bar, if you cannot tell the difference between a church service and a Civitans Club meeting or a Rotary Club meeting, when you can't tell the difference between any other social club meeting and what people do when they come to church, there is a problem. Because when a church allows unholiness to go unchecked, we become no better than everybody else. God demands holiness, not only as a church, but from you and I as individuals. And and pursuing holiness is all about pursuing the gospel of Christ, the fact that Jesus was born and that he sacrificed and that he died for our sins and that he rose and that he is coming back. We need to remind ourselves that, that we are here not to just fulfill our own needs, but to live out the great commission to which God has called us to. And the writer even mentions Esau. He says that Esau was what? He says that Esau was immoral and irreverent. Well, when I hear that, I think of, you know, when, when you hear that, you think of Esau as that guy that, that when he walks into the church, everybody just kind of looks at and thinks, oh, well, there's, there's the token sinner for today, right? He's immoral and irreverent. But here's the thing you don't think about, folks. Check this out. Esau looked as good as you and I. He was a hunter. He was well respected by his peers. He had lots of wealth. He came from a good family. He looked just like you look today. But he was irreverent and he was immoral. So much so that he did not take seriously his right as the firstborn son of Isaac. So he traded his birthright for a bowl of stew. That's how much he thought of the Lord and the covenant that the Lord had with him. Like Esau, anyone who takes for granted their relationship with God is just like Esau, immoral and out of luck. In verse 17 it says, he wanted to inherit the blessing He was rejected because he didn't find any opportunity for repentance, though he sought it through tears. Look, at that moment when someone denies Jesus Christ, at that moment when someone says, I know there's a God, but I don't care, I'm going to do it my way. The moment you disregard God in your life, you can cry, you can laugh, you can get mad, you can get violent, but it doesn't change the fact that you have disregarded your right. To become a child of God. In pursuing holiness by works, 
and any other means will be based on your performance. The thing about pursuing holiness, here's what it sounds like. If I am good enough, God will bless me. We say, if I am good enough, God will bless me. But when actually holiness, pursuing holiness is, God has blessed me, therefore I should be good. We don't try to be good to bless God. We don't earn our salvation. The Bible says it was what? A gift. And, and we don't get, I mean, if we do extra good things for the Lord, is he proud of us? Absolutely. But as far as him loving us more, that's impossible. He already loves us. It's not about what we do for God, but it's about what God does for us. For example, someone tries to become a Christian, they say, well, preacher, I'm being as good as I can. And I hope that at the end of the day, when all of my good works are stacked up, they're better than my bad works. And I pray that God says, just come on in, good and faithful servant. Then I would say, what have you done with Jesus Christ? Is Jesus Christ your Savior and Lord? There is no amount of works. There is no humanitarian that can put every... If we put every dollar we had into some type of humanitarian, people-aiding effort, it would be good but it would be temporary because he tells us here to pursue holiness, to get rid of bitterness. Matter of fact, he says that we need to squash any root of bitterness because bitterness will take you to where you never want it to be. Hurt brings bitterness, which opens the door to jealousy, dissension, and immorality. When you see people that are in jail, when you see people that are racked by immorality and they're in lifestyles that are definitely uh, bad lifestyles. No one's going to say, oh, well, you know, it's just, I woke up one day and I wanted to be like this. It starts with a root, a desire, a bitterness, a thought, a grudge, being hurt. And that goes to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. Many who are lost in sin today, it is because it started with a root of bitterness. And if you are ruled by bitterness, your faith will always be shaken. If you have bitterness in your life towards someone, something, some action, and you will not let it go, that's on you. The second thing we see is that we never lose a healthy fear of God. We are to never lose a healthy fear of God. It says in verses 18 through 24, For you have not come to what could be touched, to a blazing fire, to darkness, to gloom and storm, to the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words. Those who heard it begged that not other, another word be spoken to them, for they could not bear what was commanded. And even if an animal touches the mountain, it may be stoned, or it must be stoned. The appearance was so terrifying that Moses said, I am terrified and trembling. Instead, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to myriads of angels and festive gatherings, to the assembly of the firstborn whose names have been written in heaven, to God who is the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteousness, righteous people made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and the sprinkled blood by which says, Better things than the blood of Abel. Folks, our world has lost the fear of God. Psalm 147.11 says that the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him. 
Also, we see that Joshua encouraged the people to fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Folks, fearing the Lord isn't the type of fear you have when you go see so, someone scares you in the dark or, or if someone is scared of someone uh, abusing them or someone is in fear of their life. That's not the type of fear that we're talking about here. Fear isn't the type of thing that when you get into an elevator with a lot of people. Do you, anyone ever have the fear of the elevator getting stuck? Yeah, I know how it is. Listen, I do a lot of hospital visits, and, and I've been in a lot of elevators over my life, and, and it's amazing. You have one or two people in there, it's not a big deal. Everybody, I'm the guy that goes to the corner, you know. I like the corner. Some of you might be the guy that likes to be right by the panel, you know, and be able to push the buttons for everybody. Not me. I like to, I like to go in the corner. And then all of a sudden, if you're not careful, you know, it's like every floor, ding, ding, ding. Then you start looking around and more people are getting on and more people are getting on. I love it when I get into a crowded elevator because when I step on a crowded elevator, everybody just looking straight and then they all look up to that sign with a weight capacity. <laughs> then they start doing the math. That's wrong, isn't it? That's wrong. But we haven't got stuck yet. But maybe one day we will, but... But that's one thing to fear that. But when it comes to fearing the Lord, to fear the Lord means this. To fear the Lord means to respect him and have reverence for him. Folks, if you fear the Lord, it's going to keep you from doing things that you know he doesn't want you to do. Listen, when I was was being raised and my mom said, look, your daddy doesn't want you to do that. If I did it, I know that I would get in trouble. You know, wait till your daddy gets home. I feared that. Didn't mean I didn't love him, but I respected him. Respect God and have reverence for God, because with fear there is no, without fear, there is no conviction of sin, no repentance, no deliverance, and no unshakable faith. This is why our churches are filled with people that have no life change in their lives because they go to church, they worship God, but they do not fear Him. If we feared God, our society would be in a different light. We're even afraid to talk about Him at a football game. We're afraid to have a bumper sticker on our car. We're afraid that if we mention God somewhere, that, that we'll get in trouble. Our courts don't want him on any, any kind of plaque, any kind of, of decoration. I'm surprised they hadn't even thrown out the Bible that they swear on before people testify. We want to push God out of everything. We don't fear him. We say, God, get out of our way. I have no fear of you because we are greater than you. And we wonder why we are in the shape that we are in. And when we hold on to our sin, when you hold on to your sin and you think that you know your sin better than God, it shows that you do not fear Him, you do not give it to Him, and you hold on to it. Look, when you and I hold on to bitterness and we don't give it to God, we are saying that we can do more with it than God can. Oh, how misguided are we? There is only one God, and you are not Him. And neither am I. A true fear of the Lord saves us from our own sin and the selfishness. Folks, if we feared God, 
the altars of these churches would be flooded with people repenting. Because we're not preaching sin. There's no conviction of sin. There is All there is is what kind of music can we play and is it something I like? That's what churches are about. Where has the fear of God gone? Because when we sit in these pews, we want someone to tell us that everything's going to be okay. Folks, it's not all going to be okay. In the end, it will, but it says here that we live in a shaken world. In Hebrews 4, 16, we see that we have, though to be unshakable, we have a means of approach. We can approach God through Jesus Christ. It says in Hebrews 4.16, he says, So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy, and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. And the third thing we see is that becoming unshakable happens by pursuing the unshakable. We become unshakable by pursuing the unshakable. Verse 25 says, Make sure that you do not reject the one who speaks. For if they did not escape when they rejected him, who warned them on earth? Even less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven. His voice shook the earth at the time. But now he has promised, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also heaven. This expression, yet once more, indicates the removal of what can be shaken. That is, Created things, so that what is not shaken might remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us hold on to grace. By it, we may serve God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. I want you to see something here in this passage. We see this, that God's love and his judgment are both Consistent. Just as those who ignored the warnings of the prophets and the heroes of the Old Testament were wiped out, were punished, were, were obliterated, they ignored the message. So will those who ignore the gospel message of Jesus Christ in this new covenant. One day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And proclaim that Jesus Christ is Savior and Lord. And there will be a lot of Esau's weeping and praying for one more chance. But their chances will have been given. And there will be no room to make reparations. Folks, God's love and judgment are consistent. God loves you. But with that love, there is judgment as well. And we see here in this passage, this is not a euphemism. This is not uh, um, just a, a, an idea, an abstract thought. The, the literal fact is the world will be shaken. As we see the news on the Internet, we see that God is shaking the world already, is he not? The shaking quotation that the writer of Hebrews uses comes from Haggai, Two six, which refers to a time when the Lord shall return and fill his house with glory. Folks, every day we live, we feel 
the birth pains of Jesus' return in God's coming kingdom. And just like the Titanic, our buildings and our governments and our achievements and our bank accounts that give us so much power today will be destroyed in an instant. Nothing worldly will remain forever. The very things you pursue today with your time, your talents, your money and effort will be gone tomorrow unless it is rooted in a relationship with Jesus Christ. To be unshaken, we must hold on to God's grace. God is speaking today, and if you and I would only take the time to listen, I'm going to give you five ways we can be unshakable today. Number one, know that you are in God's kingdom. Know that you are a child of God. That's the first thing. The second thing, keep your life clean and confess before God so that you can see him clearly. Over the years, I saw many teenagers pray to receive Christ multiple times. The same teenager in sixth grade, they pray to receive the Lord. In eighth grade, they pray to receive the Lord. And in tenth grade, they pray to receive the Lord. Which one was the real one? I don't know. God does. But here's the thing. Why do teenagers do that? Because we haven't taught them that you don't need to re-accept Jesus Christ to have his forgiveness again. If you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, you are clean, you are perfect, you are unblemished. But just like when you put a new air filter in your car, after 5,000 miles, it is nasty. And over time, sin gets into our lives and we be- our filter becomes clogged. We are no longer clean. You don't have to get saved again. Jesus' blood was good the first time. But we do have to confess. We do have to repent. And we do have to pursue holiness. The third thing is fear God to the point of living for him. Fear God to the point of living for him. To fear God and to do nothing reminds me of the, the man with the talents that said that he heard that the master was was too harsh, so instead of investing his money, he just went and hid it. And and Jesus using the parable, the master said, if you were afraid of me, why don't you do something with it? Look, God has given Christians something to do. We've got to do If we fear God, we are going to be about his business. The fourth thing, fix your mind on his kingdom coming rather than your own. As he said in the chapter earlier, he said, keep running the race with endurance. And then number five, while others are frightened, you can live in confidence. Confidence in God's grace. Listen, we've got a lot of smart, educated people on our televisions and on our computers and in our books telling us what they think is going on in this world. And we have lots of people thinking they can explain away Christianity. We have lots of people trying to say that, that, uh, that God is dead. God is not dead. And those people, when their theories are put to the test, and when Jesus Christ comes out of that sky, and he brings his people home, those people like Esau that are left behind are going to have to reconcile the fact that they based their life on a lie. 
Folks, you can be confident of God's grace. You can be confident that if you are a child of God, you are unshakable. You've got to see it as that, though. And then last but not least, I love how it ends with the fact it says, our God is a consuming fire. When I think of that, that term consuming fire, I think of what we see on television, especially out in California, those poor folks. It seems like every year that uh, some small spark ends up causing wildfires that kill firefighters, that kill homeowners, that kill so many things. And, and it just started with some small spark that just flies out of control. But here's the thing, by the writer of Hebrews concluding this chapter by saying, our God is a consuming fire, that means God is unstoppable. What does this mean? It means that one day the shaking's going to come. There's nothing we can do about it. But all we can do is cling to him and be unshakable. Because here's the thing, you cannot control God. Understand this. God will not come to you on your terms. You must come to God on his terms. And his fire will either be your deliverance or your condemnation. And his love makes heaven available to you today. It says in Ephesians 1.7, it says, He is who is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. Folks, only that which belongs to God is unshakable. Friend, if you are a Christian here today and you are shaking, admit your sin, confess it, and repent from it so that you can see God clearly again. Then you will have no reason to be shaken. If you are not a Christian... I would like to tell you that everything's going to be okay, but it is not. The world is going to get worse. Don't be like Esau and say, well, if I only had one more chance to accept what God is offering to me. If you want to accept Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord today so that you can receive that unshakable faith, you can do that during this time of invitation. The altars will be open. May you come if the Lord leads. Would you please stand?